0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Today's guest's essays, memoir, fiction, and criticism have appeared in most of this country's leading publications and have been published in book form by major publishers. He has received numerous awards and has taught undergraduate and graduate students at major institutions, including Bennington College, Fordham University, Cooper Union, the University of Houston, New York University, Hofstra, and the New School. He's currently professor of writing at Columbia University. Today is his birthday, so I've invited him on the show to celebrate his incredible career. He also happens to be my brother, so it is a great pleasure that I welcome Philip Lope to our show today. Hi, happy birthday. Hey, thank you, Lenny. (laughs) Well, let's get right to this. Why did you settle on the essay form as the one that's defined you best, even though you've written a lot of other things? I could do essays. I could do things in essays that would combine poetry and fiction. Um I could tell stories uh in narrative essays and and in a way every every essay is a kind of story and I could uh use associative thinking the way I did in poetry because the essay is a kind of um, flexible form. But uh, but in general, you know, I'm I'm committed to writing of any kind. Um uh, And it just so happened that um, after I'd written a novel and a few books of poetry, I stumbled on the essay form. And some of the great essayists of the past, how uh, important was your discovery of William Hazlitt, Charles Lamb, Michel de Montaigne? Well, I would say in general that um, part of the reason I write is to emulate people who I love, you know? (laughs) Uh, And... uh, I also feel very uh, connected to a lineage, to a tradition. Uh, So uh, I not only write in the present, but I write um, to speak to the great dead. Not the grateful (laughs) dead, but the great dead. I don't know if they are grateful to me for my attempts uh, as they're looking down, or maybe in some cases looking up. Um, But in any case, uh, uh, I learned learned the, uh, the form by reading, Hazlitt, Lamb, Virginia Woolf, James Baldwin, um, George Orwell, uh, and uh, and the Fountainhead, uh, Michel de Montaigne, uh, and they gave me a lot of freedom to try things uh, that I might not have tried otherwise. <laughs> You told The Times that although the essay is the intellectual bellwether of any society, it also it always has to squeeze its way into the canon, and you said that the funny thing is that people really like to read essays only they don't always realize that's what they're reading. yeah, that's true. I do think that that the essay is the Rodney Dangerfield of. Genres uh, doesn't get no respect. They think um, that they're just reading articles. Yeah, I mean, I think that or just simply nonfiction without thinking that this is a form in itself. Well, whenever whenever an essayist is treating something that's a that's a hot topic, that's a burning issue, um, you know, you think back to uh, uh, Baldwin's "The Fire Next Time" or uh, Norman Mailer's "A Prison of Sex." Everybody reads it; they just don't realize that they're reading essays. Uh, and the same thing with uh, ta Coates, let's say. It's part of the problem that uh, we're asked to write essays when we're in college, so that's what we think the essay form really is. That's very true. I mean, I think that uh, in, in high school and in college, it's a kind of punitive form, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and when I was in, when I was in uh, high school and college, uh, I didn't think much of the essay. I thought of it as composition set. What was a penalty that I had to pay in order to read great literature— Um, But then, uh, having written uh, fiction and poetry, I discovered the essay form uh, and fell in love with it. Uh, But I continued to read uh, a lot of fiction and a lot of poetry. So I'm promiscuous in that regard. Well, you say that the essay form allows you to do all of that. Uh, What was it like trying to establish yourself as a writer at first in the face of— the general skepticism that all young writers who don't come out of famous writing families have to deal with. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that um, I try to imbue my students with, which is a um, a thicker skin, because there's going to be a lot of rejection, really. Uh, at the beginning, you're saying, uh, 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 I, I think I'm a writer, you know, um, and with all the stuttering that that implies. Uh, And and a lot of people on the sidelines are saying, no, you're not, you'll never make it, you know. Um, But eventually, uh, you publish some stuff, and the world starts to treat you like a writer, and then you think, well, maybe I am a writer after all. Hmm. Well, you're not generally thought of as a poet, but wasn't your first published book, The Eyes Don't Always Want to Stay Open?, your uh, your first in 1972. Yeah, I was a fellow. You were traveler. still young. What? You were still young in 1972. I was still young compared to where I am now, but um, mm. yeah, I I, I was uh, friendly with a lot of the poets who hung out in the St. Mark's New York School of Poetry scene, and uh, and I thought I would try my hand at poetry, and also I was going through a lot of changes: uh, first marriage breaking up, divorce, and um, uh, for a while, moving to California, and you know, uh, to write a novel, you need to be in a much more stable situation. Um, but uh, you know, when your life is all helter-skelter, mm. you can maybe knock out a poem. So you wrote poetry, and also, isn't it? E- wasn't it easier to get poetry published by a small publisher in those days? Yes, certainly that was true, um, especially because I knew some of the other poets, so so they they looked kindly to me. Uh, and I love poetry, but, but the funny thing is that I wrote poetry that, that had story in it, and it has kind of a prosaic element that mm-hmm. was conversational, you know. Uh, so in other words, I was, I was already writing the equivalents of, of essays uh, in poetry, although Charles Olson once said that uh, uh, poets should try to get into poetry what they get into the essays, and they should try to get into essays what they get into the poetry. Well... Just a few years after you published that uh, volume of poetry, Doubleday published *Being with Children*, your memoir about working at PS seventy-five as a writer in the schools, and you received a Christopher Medal for that book. Yeah, that that book did very well. I went on the did that change everything for you? Uh, (laughs) Everything kept. Kept changing, and then the next uh, hurdle would present itself. Uh, but there's no question. I I was on the Today Show, and um, the, and and they toured me around. Um, and for a while, I was seen as a kind of educational expert. You know, um, I loved the work I did with kids. Uh, that was very important for me. I got to try out a lot of ideas. And in general, I would say that um, teaching has always been very close to writing for me. You know. Um, in part, when I, when I went into the classrooms uh, with kids, I I had to improvise a lot and throw out my original notion, and there's something very uh, jazz-inflected. As you know, Lenny, I'm a jazz fan, as you are, um, and so uh, I, I was open to the idea of improvisation. We should point out that you actually had a radio show before I did. It was a jazz show on WKCR, although... I joined you pretty quickly. That's right. That's right. In doing right. Yes. that show. Yes. Yes. I was. I was on uh, KCR before uh, Phil Schap was. Well, um, he was just a kid at the time. Yeah, and now, now, now that Schap is dead, they're continuing to, to play his, uh, his tapes from beyond the grave, which is interesting because he was always such a um, inveterate speaker, and now he's speaking even after he's dead. Mm. <laughs> Well, people did complain that he talked more than uh, he played music, but that's a whole other matter. Didn't uh, the program uh, you wrote about, in being with children, become the model for similar programs throughout the country? Yeah, it was. It was influential because I was initially employed to teach uh, writing, and then I thought, well, there are some kids who just aren't that interested in poetry or fiction, but they want to make movies. Uh, they want to put on plays. And so um, my idea was to, uh, to meet the students where their energy was. And, 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 and that included a, a radio station, for instance. We did a lot of radio. Um, uh, we had a comic book project. Um, so it was, it was really um, um, a very ambitious program. And uh, I had to basically work in all these different media. I loved working especially in, in movies and videotapes with the kids. And when you say radio, you weren't talking about a a radio station that was broadcast uh, over the airwaves. It was just limited to the school. Yes, it was uh, called carrier current, um, and and it was limited to the school, but we did tape things and played them, interestingly enough, on WBAI. (laughs) So, yes, it did finally end up with a regular station, if you can call WBAI a regular station. (laughs) Well, <laughs> yes. Let's call it's a, it an irregular station. It has changed a lot over the years, I yes. know, because I worked here in earlier days and Absolutely. have come back. What impels someone like you to write? What motivations? What drives? You know, that's a very interesting question. What makes a writer write? Um, because not yet, yeah, because there are many arts that are available. I was a visual artist. That's right. Although I did like to write. Uh, my first option was to draw and to paint. You know, I remember um, being a kid, maybe I don't know, ten ten years old or so, and and watching our father um, write a poem, and and he would cross out certain words, and and you know he he it really it really involved him, and I thought, wow, that that looks like fun, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and also you know. Um, Maybe I can do what my father is trying to do, you know, which is both uh, emulation and competition. Um, I, think, I think most writers uh, find their uh, initial impetus to write in the family, what Freud called the family romance, you know. Um, so for me, uh, I also think that uh, I was not the most valuable member of our family. Some members were far louder. Um, and so, writing became a way for me to have my say uh, when i didn 't feel like I could necessarily cut into the conversation at the at the dinner table so that's one th- that's one uh, uh reason that I wrote, but also um and of course love of literature and the desire to do something like it, even though I was reading people like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and mm-hmm. thinking I can never do this, but let me just try in my own modest way to do it um, and then there's there's a theory that in some ways writing is is all about mourning and loss that is um you you know you there's so much that is lost and then writing becomes an attempt to retrieve what is lost uh so uh, you know it's very involved with with um with the recuperation of loss uh and and that of course has a lot to do with memory our father was a serious reader yes and, and although our family always seemed to be struggling financially he brought a lot of books into the house. Uh, That's right. He we we had a lot of the Signet paperback reprints. He was he was a beneficiary of this period uh, when which now seems like you know uh, so strange and over when when uh, when publishers thought that they had an obligation to bring to everyone, including the working class, um, great literature. And so uh, pocketbooks, Signet, um, uh, Modern Library, Everyman, uh, our father, you know, uh, brought a lot of these books in and talked to us about them because he was enthusiastic about them too. I remember he when he discovered Faulkner, you know, and he was really into Faulkner, you know, so we had to think about it too, yeah. <laughs> Those books, the those signet books, all fell apart at one point or another. Yeah, they had a that strange, was part of the fun of it. They had a kind of cellophane cover, you yes. know. yes. Uh, nowadays, that separated from the the paper. Yeah, but but now now you can buy them for large uh, amounts on eBay. You know, so <laughs> we should have saved them. We also, I remember, collected comic books, so that was yes. an early form of, uh, of literary collection. Um. My guest today is Philip Lopate. Uh, if the name last name sounds familiar, it should, because he is my younger brother. He's celebrating his birthday today, and uh, I'm wondering about your recent projects. Last year, you published three anthologies about the American essay. Yeah, and that, that was, how many that books was, you have altogether in print these days? What do you know? How many books you have in print altogether? I think about twenty, um, and more. But to who's come. counting, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, last year I published this uh, trilogy of uh, of anthologies of the American essay. Um, the first one was called the Glorious American Essay. Uh, the second one was the Golden Age of the American Essay, which was. Uh, nineteen forty five to nineteen seventy a very interesting mm. post war period and the third one uh, is the contemporary American essay which is uh, uh, basically 20, 21st century essays uh, are we improving or is it, or has there been a decline well no we're holding we're holding uh, holding our own mm. the essay is not going to go away I think of it as a, a as the cockroach of literary forms you know I mean after after the world is, is destroyed there will still be essays you know <laughs> um, but I also I, I also have a great itch you might say to um, to to reconstitute a canon to say you know um, let's hold on to these these essays let's hold on to this literature um, especially in America there's so much that is uh, forgotten you know Um and you know, like uh, you know, twenty years after an important writer dies, people don't talk about him anymore. So an me, example. Well, some people think actually that Norman Mailer is kind of slipping into oblivion really? among a younger people. Um, so I think I th- there are lots of other examples, mm-hmm. but um, uh, you know, and then there in art, you know, people like Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg. Uh, Maya Shapiro who had kind of forgotten so for me the people that they wrote about art we should point out to people who don't know who they are yeah they it, weren't artists themselves no they were critics mm. uh, who basically discovered and, and promoted uh, abstract expressionism and uh, and other art forms mm. so you know I I, I feel um, beholden to to these uh, predecessors, to these ancestors. And so in these three collections, I I tried to to put together a lot of what I thought uh, was most necessary to hold on to. And so that was last year. And now you have two new books in the pipeline? Yeah, I have two new books that are coming out um, in about a year. Uh, so, one of them is a new collection of too bad we can 't talk about them right now. well, oh, we can a little bit okay. oh they 're already completed yeah oh okay they 're done um so one of them is a um actually um i i I was asked by American scholar uh to to do a to keep a blog for a year uh and I ended up writing forty eight short essays, you know they were called blogs, but the fact of the matter is that it was too late for me to change my style so i'm just i was just going to write essays well so, well, well let's stop for a moment yeah. uh, so blog is a is a, a contemporary word and but even, to some degree isn't it just an, another way of saying brief short essay blog is both contemporary and to some uh uh listeners contemptible um, <laughs> yeah but i mean 20 years ago if you'd said someone was writing a blog nobody yeah. would have known what you were talking right about. right um so I, I approached it with a certain amount of skepticism, like you know thinking that uh you know in this prejudicial way that blogs were opportunity for uh people just to uh um, to blurb out whatever they th- was on their mind and without any form and of course, I had already developed a kind of approach to the essay, so that wasn't going to happen well if, if you uh, if you receive things in Facebook, you know that People, even really important people, find some of the most trivial things yep. worthy of of sharing with the rest of the world, and that wouldn't have been the case in the past. Yes, you know the, the, these these Facebook entries like you know um, I'm a block away and I think I'm going to get a ham sandwich. You know, yes. like who cares? But but I came to the conclusion finally that. Um, uh, you know, there are stupid blogs and wonderful blogs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing is true with Facebook. You know, that is that is the Internet doesn't necessarily um, lead to a debasement of uh, of thinking or literature. You know, you, you have the opportunity to write well or badly, which has always been the case. So I, I kept this, this blog. I wrote 48 of these things. Mm-hmm. And, and lots of times um, I had no idea what I was going to do on Monday. And I said, wow, you know. I better turn this thing, something, something's something got to happen to me. And so usually whatever was going on in my life, I would then think, can I turn this into a blog? You know? Because it, 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 just because something is important in your life, it doesn't mean other people will find it interesting. So true, Lenny, so true. <laughs> I mean, so the question is, how are you going to, uh, to write something which is not only um, stemming from something that you care about, but which has a kind of... Hmm. Universality, U- universality, or quasi universality, and and that's something that basically every writer develops over a lifetime, which is a kind of sixth sense about well, wh- what what issues, what concerns are going to um, you know uh, uh, strike uh, a universal uh, quality, and so you know. But sometimes, you know, like just to give you some examples, I I went to a an Agnes Martin show at the, at uh, the Guggenheim and wrote about it. I went to a jazz club and wrote about that. I played tennis very badly and wrote about that. Um, I wrote about my domestic life. I wrote about politics because, basically, I had to write about whatever was going on in my head. You know. Oh. Well, Writing about one's domestic life can be a problem, can't it? You absolutely. have to know where the lines have to be drawn. Yes, exactly. And sometimes you cross those lines. And, you <laughs> and a, does that cause trouble? <laughs> you get a certain amount of grief. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, Joan Didion famously said, and Janet Malcolm also said things like this, that every writer uh, uh, betrays people, you know. Um, and certainly... I do think there's some truth to that 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 like uh you know, if you go to bed with dogs, don't be surprised when you wake up with fleas and if you hang out with writers, you know, you may end up finding yourself written about. Um so, um what's the what's the what's the solution to that, you know? Um well, accept the guilt, you know. Or only write about people who are no longer around to complain. Who are no longer around to complain. You know, I, I, I recently wrote a book, uh, as you know, uh, called a mother's tale, which was all mm-hmm. about our mother, and and um, for me it was very liberating because I had often written about childhood. Uh, childhood is sometimes said to be like um, the you know the golden uh, you know repository for a writer. You know, uh, you know th- their childhood is something they can always draw on, and if if they've had a happy childhood, so much the worse for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have an unhappy childhood, you know, you you got a lot of stuff to write about. Oh, um gee, I should be writing big novels. Yeah, exactly. Not too late. So <laughs> so um but the fact is that I had these tapes wh- where I had interviewed my mother and so for the first time I was able to put her language in into a book, not just mine. Um and, and uh, I found that very liberating because, you know, I wasn't just writing about her, but I was actually giving her um, the floor, you know? Well, she played an important role in our interest yeah. in the arts. She was uh, in show business uh, on and off uh, and she actually appeared in a number of, of famous TV commercials. And she and, was very theatrical. And she Performed live in nightclubs and, and sometimes in our house. Yes, exactly. <laughs> often in our house. <laughs> often in our house. She tried out her operatic style in our house. So, I mean, as I said, I, I got so much from my father watching him write poems, and I got so much uh, from my mother because she was a great storyteller. Hmm. Um, she had a great oral style and and was never at a loss for words. The other book you have coming out is a collection of film criticism. Yeah, you know. I don't know if this is completely true, but I think that most writers have another art that they um, are very involved with that they use as a kind of a way to bounce off of their their technical problems in their own art. So for me, movies have always been something that fascinated me, and I've written uh, a ton of, of film criticism, and so I decided to collect it all. This was really, in a way... Um, a COVID project, you know. You're sitting at home, you don't go out too much. You know, you think, well, what can I do? What, what could my next book be? And so I started going through all this film criticism that I'd written um, and uh, finding it charming and delightful. Really. Um, so, you know, but in any case, finding it readable. Um, and, and I realized that I had always been asked to write about art movies. I've never been asked to write about uh, a Marvel Comics movie, for instance. So basically, but well, because I've, people see you as an intellectual, yeah, they see me as an maybe they see me as an intellectual, and maybe there are people who are much more tuned into pop culture than I am, who are better suited for the Marvel Comics review. Uh, but but it, interestingly, by the way, mm-hmm. we had in our house the first Spider-Man, the first. Fantastic Four comics. And we let and it go? Mother, our mother uh, was cleaning up the house and <laughs> said, throw these things out. <laughs> they would be worth thousands of dollars now. Well, considering the fact that she was close to a hoarder, uh, it's good that she threw something out, you know. <laughs> well, she threw out, she saved things that weren't worth as much, but, well, that's, we also had the first superman comic uh he, the uh because we used to go to the movies as kids i yes. used to i w- used to take you and our sister betty and to the movies every weekend and some of the local theaters in williamsburg would give out comic books and they gave me the action comic that superman first appeared in and wow. my and our mother threw that one out too I remember that period when, when uh, when movie theaters were We'd trying very- to entice people back. Um, TV had just started, and and so they would give you like Tootsie rolls or comic books, uh, and in some cases dishes. Do you remember that? Of course. And actually, for kids, it, sometimes it, it taught us some of the sad lessons of life because a new movie theater opened up in Williamsburg near where we lived on Lee Avenue. I think it was called the Modern. And we were told that uh, the first kids online would get some money. So we happened to be among the first kids online. And right before the film began, these men came along and they pushed us back and brought in other kids who happened, we learned to be the children of the owner of the theater. You see, it was fixed. It was corrupt. <laughs> yes, and we were learning about corruption as corruption. children. Exactly, exactly. Well, shows you right. Um, but but they did have they did ha- in these uh, movie theaters. They did have two features. Yes. Um, uh, Lots Lewis, of cartoons, a, a, cartoons, coming attractions. So this was a good way for. Oh, and we learned all about the world because they also there would be all of these uh, document these films about what was going on in yeah we <laughs> in were the just, Middle East or whatever. They, we would just it was just they would just wash over us uh, and 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 reprogrammed us, you know, and um, and 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 give us. Uh, Models of uh, of beauty that ruined our lives for the rest of our lives. Do you think that the structure of movies has played a role in the way you construct a story? Or? I, I do to some degree. I mean, one of the things that I got from movies, uh, especially art movies, uh, was um, a sense of uh, of the environment that surrounds a character. Um, so, for instance, uh, Antonioni, you would see not just the... the the, the figures, but you'd see the backgrounds, and sometimes he even kept the camera running after the ca- after the actors left the set. So there was a sense of people are not just, um, you know, protagonists of their own dramas, but they're set in a, in a social context. Uh, and so sometimes when I was writing, uh, like, especially when I was writing fiction, I would think to myself, where would I put the camera if this was a scene, you know? Well and it would really it would really influence you know the way I would write like a group scene for instance you know um and then I guess the sense of uh, of pace you know that that was that 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 although that's changed so much because uh uh the leisurely pace has gone out of movies to such a great degree, and, and so often uh, young people, when they see older movies, say, "This is slow," you know. Yeah. And to us, it's like boring. Just the things, to you know. me, of course, it's really m- profound. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I recently saw um, Tar, um, um, which I liked, and which you didn't. Um, and and well, uh, I had mixed feelings about it. I thought some of it was good, and some. But of one it of the things I liked about it was that, especially on. in the first half was that it, it it moved at a rather leisurely pace, and I love that it wasn't that well anyway we could argue when, when, about that when, when i we're... write when I write my review of it, which is never going to happen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'll go into detail and why although you know there's a funny thing that happened in New York magazine, they published an article a fun article about her and if, about m- about um Tar, whatever her first name oh, yeah, was, tar, yeah. uh, and she and they. One of the, one of the things they said she did, which of course she didn't do, was fill in for me on WNYC when I took some days <laughs> off. <on. laughs> That's very funny. Yeah. So anyway, I do think that pace is pace is part of what I got from movies, um, and a sense of um, of um, the larger social context in which people uh, live out their lives, you know. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Philip Lopate and uh, that you'll play your part in keeping WBA on the dial by becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. If you do, we'll say thank you. In the name of Leonard Lopate, at large, if you, well, we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much if you do. And return to Philip Lopate, who uh, joins us today on his birthday. Uh, you said that you've already published about. Uh, 20 books or so? We yeah. haven't even mentioned some of the the topics. You, you've written about travel. You've written about architecture as well. A lot of what I've written about has also been New York City because that's a subject matter that I draw on endlessly. Um, I wrote a book called Waterfront, which was mm-hmm. about the, the, edge, the edge of the shoreline of Manhattan. Um, and uh, to some degree, uh, you know, I consider myself... Uh, a New Yorker, uh, uh, as part of my core identity, you might say, um, I love cities. I love I love uh, urban life, um, and uh, I'm unapologetic about that. And uh, writing about the waterfront, how does a book like that even develop? You're just walking along the waterfront, and you thought, gee, I'd like to write about this? No, I got in advance to write a book about New York City. Oh. Um and I realized after a bit that I did not have any large theory. Um, So I was in trouble. Um, And then um, I was doing a lot of uh, volunteer work with the Municipal Arts Society, and there was a lot of consideration about the waterfront, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just uh, write about the waterfront. So so I walked around the waterfront, um, and um, sometimes taking risks because some of it was a little bit uh, raw and undeveloped uh, and highways and all that kind of stuff um, but uh, I, I I also found different themes along the waterfront that I could write about um, so uh, you know I mean themes that uh, you were interested in before you started writing about it or developed that, because you were just noticing things yeah themes that developed uh, uh, like for instance, uh, there are these things called shipworms, you know, um, and so I wrote a whole chapter about shipworms because once the once the um the uh, rivers started being cleaned up. These shipworms came in, and they started eating away at the at the piers and destroying. <laughs> and you know, this is truly one of these "no good deed goes unpunished" things. You know, like uh, we cleaned it up, and then all these shipworms. So the ships had left these worms. No, no, the shipworms just live in the water. You know, oh. they're something like a kind of they're an organism. You know, mm-hmm. a mollusk or something like that. Anyway, um, so I wrote about that, or I wrote about. Um, the, the piracy that used to uh, uh exist in the eighteenth century because new york uh was one of the centers of piracy uh you had a lot of rough characters and captain Kidd lived in new york really uh, yeah he lived in he 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 lived in the uh, uh in the Lower manhattan um he had done what people did in those days uh, he married a a wealthy widow you know um but that but that wasn't quite enough and so he 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 um he put together a ship uh uh, uh to hunt pirates and then uh somewhere on the, the line he said well maybe we're just gonna become pirates <laughs> <laughs> this is uh an interesting career to pursue yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly well there still are pirates obviously mm-hmm. you know um especially uh you know um, uh, uh, in Africa uh, uh, where they still uh where it's, a you know, a going concern, like that movie Captain Phillips, you know. Um, so uh, and there's still a lot of wild stuff because essentially this, the seas can never be really policed. They're just too vast, you know. You also served as a consultant for Rick Burns' PBS documentary on the history of New York City. That's right. Um, so that's another thing. I mean, I just—I uh, love New York history, um, and— um, I, I like to go around New York and to think about things that used to be there, you know. Uh what haunts it? Uh what ghosts are there? Um uh, so uh, as you know I live in Brooklyn and um uh there's a lot of uh of um Red Hook for instance that that uh, was really important in terms of uh, shipping and stuff like that. Uh and and so yeah, you know, you see, you see what well, you see the layers. You know, it's like a palimpsest. You see all these layers of history, um, and, um, and that that gives that gives texture and that gives richness to the experience of living in a place. Uh, and as you know, um, just since we've lived in New York, uh, you know so many buildings that we were attached to have been torn down or repurposed or something like that. You think, what used to be here? I can't remember, you know? But Brooklyn also uh, has served a a major role in the history of the United States because immigrants tended to come to Brooklyn first. It's often, for a long time, it had the largest immigrant population in America. Yeah, you know, it was... They would come to Brooklyn and then in time... Move out, move to other places, some, some or of them some moved stayed. Out and some of them stayed. Yes, uh, and and when we were growing up, you know, um, Brooklyn was a major uh, manufacturing, uh, um, blue collar center, you know, and that that colored a lot of the culture of Brooklyn. You know, all of the those, those uh, D's and those uh, uh, characters in movies who, who supposedly came from Brooklyn uh, before they ended up uh, in World War Two. Um, so you know that that's changed a lot when so many of those um uh factory jobs left the city you know and it, it of course it's uh, it's um what shall i say it's it, it's diminished some of the flavor of, of brooklyn um well the other boroughs are also interesting but they have different kinds of histories yeah yeah i mean uh you know uh there's always a strange uh, uh rivalry and and um, incestuous connection between Brooklyn and Manhattan, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I lived for a while in Manhattan also, you know, and and I still go into Manhattan several times (laughs) a a week. So, you know... Well, you work there. And I work there, exactly. Uh, Oh, I go into museums or galleries or things like that. Um, uh, When I first moved back to Brooklyn... uh, Taxi drivers didn't want to take me there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it became this strange international brand, you know. Uh, and and I remember being in in, in in China and seeing somebody with a T-shirt that said 11230, which was my zip card, you know. I thought, wow, you know. <laughs> but Brooklyn, uh, at one point, also saw itself as a major cultural center. Yeah. And when we were growing up, the local library the Brooklyn Public Library of Williamsburg, was uh, a major source of, of education for people who wanted to learn about things. Yeah, they, we I, I was always grateful that uh, the librarians welcomed me and never said, oh, no, you can't read that book. Yeah, That's only yeah. something that we're seeing these days in places like Florida. Yeah, there's no question that we were we were um, shaped um uh, by by the, by the Brooklyn Public Library, uh, the, Brooklyn, and the Museum. Brooklyn Museum, in your case because you were you were taking painting at the Brooklyn Museum, um, and and you know so uh, it took us it took us a while to get into Manhattan. I went to Columbia as an undergraduate, and that was like you know um, breaking away from Brooklyn, betraying Brooklyn, you might say. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we definitely are, and we one way or another, for better or worse, we're Brooklyn kids. And you think that there is a difference if you grow up in in a different part of the city, that if you're a Bronx kid, you're a different kid? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think of some writers who grew up in the Bronx. um, And um, they, well, they were always writing about the Bronx, for instance. Um, And and Staten Island is its own thing, you know. Um, I remember once uh, my wife asking me... uh, would you consider moving, you know? And I said, I'm very flexible. I'll live anywhere in the five boroughs of New York City, including Staten Island. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, shows Were fle- you serious? Would you move to Staten Island? Well, Staten, Staten Island, Island is, has, has areas that you yeah. might find very comfortable. Staten Island is kind of fun, and, and there, was, there were certain bohemian areas in Staten Island that I, that I used to hang out in, you know? Uh, and then there's uh, the, the, um, the Mets farm team, um, Mm-hmm. yeah and so yeah um and basically just the ferry is great you know so um there used to be many more ferries in new york of course uh uh the west side used to be dotted with ferries um uh, and some of that ferry thing is coming back but it, it it really requires a lot of uh government subsidy for it to work what about talking about government what about your political beliefs have you ever tried to work with them as material you know that's an interesting question um basically um i found it a little awkward to be uh polemical uh to to make political pronouncements um the 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 generation before the so-called new york intellectuals um they 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 thought nothing about mouthing off on everything you know um and uh the partisan review crowd etc and and um in some ways because they did it so well, uh, you know, my generation felt like uh felt a little bit constrained. Uh we were just as political, if not more political, you know, we, we were all protesting against the Vietnam War and so on. Um, but to write about it was a different story. Um, I remember thinking, um, how can I write a piece about apartheid? I'm against apartheid, uh, but what do I have to say personally that's not just a cliche or something very obvious, uh, so I never did write that piece about apartheid, you know, um, but eventually, I felt a little bit more comfortable writing about some things political um, and, and and in a way, everything I've written has had a basically a left lo- li- i'm sorry, a left liberal orientation. so you know, without my necessarily waving a left liberal flag. It's, it's it's pretty obvious uh, where my sympathies lie. Just as I think, in spite of your thinking that people don't know where you're coming from, it's perfectly obvious where you're coming from as well. Well, I think that one of the the things that has changed is that the instead of writers telling us what to think we have people on television telling us what to think. So if you watch MSNBC, CNN or right. or Fox, you have the the host, you have the hosts of the show telling you what to think and then bringing on a guest to confirm uh, th- their opinions, which I uh, f- uh, well <laughs> Which, I find which difficult, but, the, but the writers are no longer uh, writing those kinds of pieces, are they? Or, or, or are are op eds the equivalent of what we're talking about? Uh you know, I think what happened. Have you written op eds? You've written yes, but I think what's the happened. The Times and other Basically, is is um, that uh, everything become more specialist oriented? You know, so so the idea of the the generalist writer, you know. Like Paul Goodman, who would write about anything, you know, that's that's kind of a that's kind of faded, you know, and so now you get the person who's who's an expert, let's say, on immigration or an expert on on uh, on inflation, and they're going to write the piece, you know, and so writers just basically have um, have deferred uh, to the specialists. Uh, and they're not being asked as much to to comment and you don't have as much of uh, uh, what what used to be called public intellectuals. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at wbai.org is Philip Lopate um, who has published over 20 books and um I was looking at the, the, the titles of the essay collections, for example, and I wonder whether, to some degree, they don't represent a kind of an intellectual autobiography. You have Bachelorhood, and then against Joie de Vivre, and then Portrait of My Body, and then Totally, Tenderly, Tragically, Getting Personal, Notes on Suntag, Portrait Inside My Head, To Show and To Tell, and I probably have left a few out. Yeah, I mean... The, the titles would tell us a, a bit about what you want us to think about in I, terms Absolutely. I mean I think of my my work as additive that is if you put it all together then you get uh then you get the whole the whole enchilada you might say. Um, so yes um you could say that I that I was lazy and I did it in the form of uh, individual essays because I I I didn't want to take on one large project um uh but I do think that uh, that it was a way of uh, of uh, carving out individual pieces which then add up, you know. Um, so, you know, I think about certain writers, great writers, like Proust or Walt Whitman, who basically wrote one book that they kept adding to again and again. Mm. So, you know, I didn't write one book, but you could consider it as one book. Um, you know, put it all together, because I think it's impossible ever – to get all your thoughts in one piece, you know? So you're always going to get a sliver. But you add up all those slivers and you get a life. You get a person. Well, when you look back at some of the earlier writings from the 70s, do you see a different person? Ah! Well, um, I guess I do see a somewhat different person because I think one of the reasons that, that I mean I'm wondering about writers over a career. In in this case we're talking about, okay, this is the seventies to today, uh forty something years. Yeah, well when I was writing Bachelorhood, I was writing much more um like a single man, you know. And now I've been married for over thirty years and I'm I'm not writing like a single man anymore, uh for better or worse, you know? That that although, you know, Elizabeth Hardwick said that um that um all writing is profoundly unmarried. Um, and I think what she meant is that when you're writing, you know, you're know, you in your head and you're not necessarily part of a couple. But I do think that I've, I've changed a lot and, and I would hope uh, that I would get, uh, I've gotten wiser, you know? So I don't write as much out of revenge, let's say, as I used to uh, uh, or, or competition or something like that and I'm writing out of a larger perspective, we hope. You've also edited anthologies of other people's work. Yeah. So, would they, the the people you've selected, uh, reveal where your own aesthetics are? That's that's a whole different um, vocation, you might say, to be to be an editor of anthologies, which I love doing. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm just at home reading, I'm much more intolerant. Like, you know, if I start to read something and it doesn't suit me, I say. Uh, Oh, forget that, and I throw the book across the room. <laughs> but when I'm but when I'm I'm editing an anthology, I have to, I have to be more considerate of where this writer is coming from, where this writer fits into uh, the larger cultural conversation, and so I become I become more inclusive, more tolerant. You know, I have to, and I, I like that. You know, I like becoming more generous in that way. And does that then influence you as a writer? It's got to influence me as a writer. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, essentially, when I when I when I sit down to write, um, I'm, I'm basically channeling the the same or similar Philip LoPate character, you know, who I've learned to develop, you know, just as Buster Keaton learned to develop Buster or. Jerry Lewis learned. You know, I think in some ways the Philip Lopez character is a comic character. <laughs> You've also been uh, on the selection committee over the years of the New York Film Festival and other yes. f- film festivals. Uh, what, what do you? What's your thoughts about the current state of movies? I'm not as happy with what I've been seeing recently as I was in years past. Well, I don't think we're going through. Uh, a great period like the early 60s when you had, uh, you know, um, uh, the French... Godard, Chabrol, etc. Yeah, and you had uh, this Polish... uh, Yesterday I was watching uh, Ashes and Diamonds by Vila. You know, all these wonderful filmmakers around the world. Um, But I do think uh, beautiful films are still being made. uh, And I don't don't think that the... I don't don't think that there's as much excitement uh, in young people about uh, film because I think that uh, film has become more of a niche industry, you might say, compared to gaming, let's say. Um, But I I do think that um, beautiful films are being made. I went to the New York Film Festival uh, recently, um, and I saw this Kelly Reichert film called Showing Up, which I thought was so intelligent, you know. And I've always liked Kelly Reichert's work anyway. Um, And so, uh, you know, I do do think that... um, Excellent films are still being made. Uh, maybe not masterpieces uh, the way they used to be, uh, but certainly um, uh, satisfying in their own right. Today is your birthday? Yes. It did, are these uh, birthdays significant to you? Not really. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife and daughter said, well, what What do you want? It's your birthday. You know, I thought, oh, well, let's just get past this. You know, it's another day. Um and, uh, so am I embarrassing you by having you on the show? I'm, on always embarrassing me, Lenny. That's just my fate. <laughs> that's one of my roles in life, to that's embarrass right. you? That's right. And, and vice versa, I hope I'm embarrassing you. No, Phil, no. I'm oh. very proud of you. <laughs> and I hope I'm embarrassing you by telling you that. Yeah, that's fine. You are. I'm blushing right now. But, it's you know, I, I, I think um, maybe next year will be more of a significant year, and I'll i 'll feel that I have to do something um, but yeah, this is the most thing i 'm doing on my birthday is being on your show, which is i 'm very pleased to do actually next year because next year you 'll be eighty yes next year and year. why uh why are those signposts important to us i don 't know if they are important um well, they are to people you you say to, uh, not just you, anyone might say well i 'm eighty years old yes they don 't say i 'm seventy seven yes in the same way well Charles Lamb said that um, birthdays are not as important as New Year's Eve. That's when you really come to terms with uh, with how much older you've gotten or how far you are from your childhood, let's say. Um, but anyway, you know, it, uh, it's funny how older people boast about how old they are as if they've done something great simply, simply by hanging on, you know. Um, so, uh, okay. So I have hung on, you know, and uh and so far it sounds like you retained all of your marbles. Yeah, most of my marbles actually. I think I see a few rolling on the floor right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean I the strange thing is that I I've I've done let's say I've accomplished more than I ever thought I would when I was younger. I never thought I would be um quite a successful writer as, as I've turned out to be. By successful writer, I mean I can get my books published. And you also have been given a fair number of awards. And yeah. uh, you, you once bragged to me that you have been to every continent but Antarctica. And uh, I'm, And I'm assuming in most cases it's because somebody invited you to do something, either participate in something or to receive an award. Yeah, no, I've done a fair amount of travel, that's true, And but I'm not that eager to go to Antarctica, actually, actually. and I don't really? think they have too many writers' conferences there. <laughs> well, there are other reasons to go to Antarctica, but anyway, and, and by the way, there might be a very interesting book in it. Yeah, there might, yeah. Meanwhile, I look forward to the two books that are coming out sometime in the next year, and i um, so pleased that you were able to join us today for your your birthday, thank you, Lenny, and I look forward to our next conversation. And that, uh, sadly for me, brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. dot org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show and this station coming to you. Uh, We would love to be here for you every weekday from 1 to 2 p.m. And we can't always do it because sometimes we have to uh, uh, be preempted for fundraising. Uh, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give2wbai.org to right now. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And we hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, 20 $25, however much you feel comfortable giving until you decide you no longer want to do it. And it allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you to anyone who becomes a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more with a BAI tote bag. Um, So I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Uh, Remember, we are a historic station and the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. If you help us stay alive with your contribution, uh, you can also declare a tax deduction. And we hope that you'll join us on Friday when my guest will be Bob Henley with an overview of the election results and other important news about our area. And we will see you then.